Thank you for gathering together today at 8.30 in the morning, Aurora's time, <laughs> and 9.30 with the rest of our time. Um, what happened last time is that I forgot that I had to leave the state. Yep, so now two of us are in different states from when we last recorded. It's a different day, it's early in the morning, we're so good to go. Yeah, also three of us are in the same city, but different places. Yep, we're doing great. Yes, it's terrible. Alright, we should actually do like the, the intro. Hello, and welcome to Tortal Recall, the podcast where we reread the Tamara Pierce books and yell about them. My name is Abby, and my pronouns are she, her. My name is Aurora, and my pronouns are she, her. My name's Grace, and my pronouns are she, her. Uh, my name's Gus, and my pronouns are they, them. Did you forget that you had to say your name, Gus? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm just awkward all the time. <laughs> so, did I... Did I... Mm-hmm. Nothing. Did it work? It did work, I think. <laughs> did I say my name? It was great. We're good. Everybody's great. Right. Okay, so last time we, we said that we were recording two episodes in one go. Turned out that we were wrong about that, so now it's a different day. We're ready to get back into the yelling. It's very early, but it's always yelling time. Yes. Oh boy, is it. I, yeah, I'm always ready to yell, even right away in the morning. Got my coffee, ready to go. Okay, sounds great. So, where we left off last time was in the middle of Social Justice Corner, and we were about to start talking about race. So I guess let's get right into that. Buckle your seatbelts, kids. (laughs) (laughs) Where do my race notes start? Where do my race notes end? I've got, like, multiple pages, honestly. I mean, even my notes in other sections of Social Justice Corner were intersecting. So, right, I mean, I guess to start from the top, like... This is a white savior narrative. There's a lot of colonialism. I mean, the whole thing is about a white person going into, you know, an exotic brown culture and getting adopted into it and learning from them and then, like, learning to be better than them. Like, it's not good. No, it's bad, actually. And trying to change their culture. Yeah. Oh, the thing that bugged me, this is also, like, a gender thing, but the thing that bugged me so much is that Alana would not stop talking about how she wanted... The, her, the girls to stop wearing face veils, which, what? It was done really weirdly. Like, there were all these references to, like, how she didn't want them to be wearing their face veils, and we never saw them, like, discuss it or anything. Right, they, they, men- they mentioned a couple times, or, like, Alana mentioned a couple times that she, like, couldn't get them to stop, but we never saw her try. Right, which I wouldn't have wanted to see her try. It was just, but it, the way that it was just, like, implied made it very... It's bad. Well, right. I mean, this is such a, um, I guess, Western narrative that uh, I guess mostly Arab and Islamic women are being oppressed by their expression of their religion. And I mean, it's not clear that it is religion in this book. There's no indication of why they wear the face veils, but it's part of their culture and they want to be doing it. So why is she trying to stop them? Right. And I would argue that that, like, not having a complex representation of like what the veils mean if they have cultural relevance uh irrelevance is actually worse because it's presented Mm. as them being really silly Mm -hmm. and having this quirk where they're modest because they're oppressed and then of course that has like some really unfortunate contemporary relevance because that's been 
coming up a lot for Islamic women in many Western cultures um, or countries recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's very hard to read that. And I don't think you should read it non-politically. You should be reading it politically. Right. No, I mean, it's actually interesting Mm -hmm. that there's so little discussion of, you know, why they do wear the face veils, why Alana wants them to stop. Like, it's all very much implied, which I think is because there's so much cultural connotation for it in our culture Mm -hmm. that um, Tamara Pierce probably just assumed that people would know. We don't hear a lot from the girls, which is unfortunate, because they would be such, you know, like, rich, interesting characters if we Mm -hmm. got to. What we do see of them is great. It is. Yeah, I like them a lot. I like them as characters. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really sad that we don't see more from them. Yeah. I thought a fun spinoff or, like, a nice way that this book could have, in a an alternate universe been written um, would be from the perspective of one of those girls or maybe from, like, uh, what was her name? Madam or Mistress Farrar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, that would be a great, cool book. It would set the whole thing on its head and it would be delightful. <laughs> but no. Um, oh, in any case, back to um, the veils. When I first read this, I was, like, I was trying to get a reading in which the author was trying to be subversive. <laughs> I tried real hard. <laughs> um, because, you know... <laughs> Alana's not the most reliable narrator. So I was like really, really trying to like grab onto that and be like, oh, she wants this. But, you know, obviously they never went along with what Alana wanted. And so, you know, maybe that is like some bit of defiance that the author's putting into the book. But I'm like, you know, probably (laughs) not JK, (laughs) especially given the amount of discussion she doesn't give. Yeah, I mean, I do appreciate that um, sort of the ending of that little minor subplot is Alana saying like, well, you know, they, they've really learned a lot, even if I never got them to take off their face veils, and she sort of stops trying and, like, not necessarily respects that, but I am glad at least that it it didn't end with a plotline where they were saying, you know, oh, I guess we've, we've become enlightened and westernized and now we want to take off our face veils. You know, that wasn't the ending, and that's good. There's some, there's some amount that this narrative does focus, um, I'd argue that this is a way that it's, like, trying to be respectful of a culture is that it focuses on this is a way that the Bajir can like they're still trying to hold on to their culture while changing aspects of it enough to like fit in so to speak with the dominant culture in Tortal. I mean, right, I hadn't read this book before this reading of it, and I was worried it was going to be worse. I think we should mention at this point, possibly, that all of us are white and, you know, we're not authorities on this. Oh, yeah. uh, so if we say wrong things, you should tell us about it, please. Um, but yeah, no, it, it was, there were ways in which it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be from having read the fourth book, because it was sort of... Um, I mean, it's assimilation with a colonizing force is what happens in this book, both on the level of Alana becoming shaman and teaching the tribes things, but also on the level of Jonathan becoming the voice, which is bad. That's not a good narrative. But, I, you know, I did appreciate that there was some level of um, acknowledgement that this is not the ideal situation, but they're doing it because they want to preserve their culture and uh, preserve their way of life as much as they can. Which, is, I mean, it's really sad, I thought. It, you know, it was really sad to hear um, Ali Muktab say he's the voice, he has some vision of the future, and saying that our culture is going to be destroyed by this colonizing force and, you know, we're working to save it. But at least we did 
have that, I guess. It wasn't just like, oh, let's welcome our oppressors, you know, let's assimilate into Tortolan culture. Um, that's why I think this would be a much more interesting and much stronger and more poignant story if we were hearing it from the any Bazir um, protagonist. Right, because Alana is so much, you know, repeatedly just on the side of, like, Tortal and the king. Um, and she likes the Bazir, but she doesn't really get their outlook at all. I think the way that this book is structured plot-wise, it is telling a story that is very imperialist and very, very racist. Um, I think we can agree on that. Like the tropes it's using and like the white savior mm-hmm. narrative. The thing that that does then is because it's presented by like Ali Maktab as like this necessary thing, like this is the only way that we can do the things that we need to do because it's presented by this authority within that culture then the things that Alana and Jonathan do, those things are excused within the context of the story. Because Ali Muktab gives them permission, and the tribes give them permission. Yeah, it's very it's very sanctioned by the narrative. Yeah, which makes me very uncomfortable. Yes, because there would be a way to tell a similar story that was critical, but this isn't that. Yeah, no, it, it's unfortunate. I want to shout out to um, Métis in Space for talking about various indigenous tropes in literature, in media. They're not coded as Native American or, in you know, n- Native to the Americas, but there are some tropes here that I think are a lot like the, the colonizing tropes applied to Native Americans, where the white people come in and are made members of the tribe and become Native and then are better natives than the actual tribesmen, which is just so unpleasant. One particular moment for that is when Alana is later telling George, I believe, about what's happened. Um, She just so flippantly is like, yeah, we're busier now. Like, you were taken in by a tribe. It was very, yeah, this is a big thing. This isn't like something to brush off. And I was also going to note, like, it's very wonderful that you're listening to our podcast, which I like because we're on it. But also you should definitely, it is higher priority for you to listen to Métis and Space on this issue. Right. And many issues. They're great. <laughs> I would have been super lost in like being able to analyze this book without it. Right, yeah. No, there, there's so many tropes that they really explained well and made me much more aware of. Um, but right, another another time that Alana tells George that she's Bazir, then when Jonathan becomes voice of the tribes, you know, he keeps talking about Bazir history as saying, like, we crossed the Inland Sea and, you know, we did the... It's just terrible. On on the other face of that, though, the, the way that Alana... There's a point where she's talking to John and she's talking about how she has become part of this tribe. But later in that conversation, she says... Where is it? She says like our army or like our or like our military referring to Tortal and she still like very much considers herself a part of like the like dominant culture in Tortal and the way that she like has become a part of this tribe while not having to give up any of her privilege I think is like pretty telling right definitely and still sort of taking the side of like you know she's sympathetic to their cause in sort of the sense of like, oh, wouldn't it be a shame if this giant army that backs my side had to come in and like crush them or whatever and get rid of their culture? But like, why can't we all just get along in the country that I live in? Right. There's a point where she's with the Bazir tribes people and she is in a fight with some other 
people that we haven't heard about before. The hillmen? I'm not sure where they came from. They're people who live in the hills and raid the Bajir. It's not really clear if they're like a distinct ethnic group or if they're just like criminals. Hard to say. Yeah. So she's fighting these hill people with the Bajir and she goes into it shouting like for Tortal and the mm-hmm. king, which really made me wonder in this instance like the bloody hawk are not a tribe that's currently with the king right they're not so if they were to have to be in some sort of skirmish it does seem like she would just go on over and be like ah sucks guys but like i'm uh, this is my side so it seems like you know especially because she's so close to jonathan if there was a conflict between tortal and uh the bloody hawk tribe she would be on the side of tortal I did also want to mention, uh, you know, when Alana attacks the hill people shouting Tortal and the king, right before that, it mentions the leader of the Bloody Hawk tribe, um, Hela Sif, uh, attacks while screaming war cries, which is also definitely what Alana's doing, but it mentions, like, you know, oh, she does her, like, you know, brave yell of Tortal and the king, and then it's such, like, racialized language to describe him doing the same thing. Yeah. Right, and another thing that's, like... I don't really feel that prepared to analyze, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing both you podcast friends' thoughts and then listener thoughts on, um, is it's very weird to me that in previous books and in a lot of this book, uh, the Bajir are coded so, like, Arabic or African, especially when you look at, like, the phonetics of their names, the presentation of their culture, uh, and then suddenly in this book we're getting a lot of, um, like, Native American tropes, um, and that mixing is very weird to me to me it feels weird because i think when you're coding something so explicitly then you're making an attempt to represent a culture and it's very wrong to just otherize everything that's not white and be like well there were some brown people in the deserts and then just mix whatever tropes you want um so that's i think what i don't like about it there's maybe some element of we recognize these tropes as tropes often applied to um indigenous or Native American populations because we're from the Americas and this is what we see sort of in our culture. But I think that there is a chance that these tropes are also applied to like, you know, Indian people under British colonialism and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're just less familiar with that. I don't really know well enough to speak on that. And like, I'm not familiar enough with like the history of colonization in the Middle Mm -hmm. East to immediately make Mm -hmm. the specific connections and that sort of thing, but um, um, that that is a colonized area, um, and a, a, an area that has a very like long and complicated history of colonization. Um, mm-hmm. And also, Tamara Pierce is writing from the U.S., so there's also that yeah. aspect to consider. So right, I mean, I think there is mm-hmm. probably some aspect of her being influenced by the same thing that we're being influenced by. Yeah, so one interesting point with that for me was when it comes to, like, the shaman, I looked up, like, where does that come from? I don't know a lot about that. And um, what I found, um, which was, like, on Wikipedia, but uh, (laughs) I tried to be informed and I will try more in the future, Uh, but uh, is basically that that is, like, there are the word shaman and those specific practices uh, come from, like, Tibetan people, Hmm. Um, but after that, it's an anthropological term that's used to describe specific religious Mm -hmm. practices. Mm -hmm. So to me, without a lot of backing on the subject, it seems pretty weird to take that anthropological form and just uh, word and 
everything and just be like, well, that's what my this fictional people use, you know, uh, when actually it is like Western culture attempting to describe stuff from one specific area yeah. and then over applying. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, there there definitely is uh, because you know there there are parts of of bougier culture that are clearly taken from. Um, Arab and Islam culture, there's also definitely North African influence, and those are overlapping populations, but as we mentioned, there are also native tropes, so there is some level where they're just, like, you know, non-specific, uncivilized brown people, which is not my favorite. No. Uh, What are you thinking, Aurora? We haven't heard from you in a while. What are you thinking about? Oh, I was unpacking some angry feelings. No, no, I, uh, I agree with you all, I was thinking about the way that within the narrative itself, um, because um, we have so little detail attributed to, you know, this culture that we're talking about. I don't know. It just presents like a very, very flat picture, mm. um, which I think doesn't do them justice. Definitely. I feel like there's so much defined by just tropes about brown people rather than yeah that's true actual sort of characteristics and some of them are like real vintage tropes (laughs) like really vintage tropes pulled out pulled out of the racism trope closet (laughs) that i felt like were not contemporary to when this novel was published yeah i mean i don't i don't know we weren't around in the 80s so i don't really know what racist tropes were in play back then apparently a lot of them (laughs) The picture that we are painted of the Bazir within the novel is one that is very much, you know, kind of very surface level and full of these tropes, which I think is one of the uh, least good parts of this portrayal. <laughs> least yeah. good. Bad. Least good, most bad. What are those specific, Grace, what sort of things, or Aurora, what sort of things are like specifically seem kind of anachronistic or out of date? For me, it was like the becoming part of the tribe like that was sort of jarring to me because I think you see that in uh, a lot in pretty early depictions I guess I'm thinking like 60s 70s which is not far from the 80s but uh, that's true yeah it was just surprising I mean also (laughs) if you listen to Métis in Space you will see these tropes right up into the present day (laughs) that's true and I guess one thing that's jarring to me is um, I've really tried to analyze these books uh generously in terms of like the era of feminism that they take place in so you can definitely Mm -hmm. see even though we have a ton of critiques for gender representation and things like that you can see the beginnings of like we're trying to be feminists and here's some things that we're trying to do that are different so um as with so many things as a white woman uh there are a lot of places where i see this discordance between uh we're trying to be like feminists but we're not even gonna we're not trying at all with racism. Like, racism seems so far back compared to the efforts with gender. Right. Intersectionality? What is that? Yeah. So, I guess that's jarring to me since I have been trying to keep keep a eye on where we're at historically Mm -hmm. so that I can analyze the feminism and that when I was trying to do that with the racism, I was, it was a good reminder that like, wow, this is really, these are different timelines. I think it's really interesting, um, sort of in the context of feminism and the um the veil thing we were talking about earlier and also just like the broader sort of colonialist narrative like it's so interesting to apply these things that are um 
cultural values from the time that Tamara Pierce was writing this to this world where Tortal is a monarchy and women are very oppressed in it. So it's interesting to see Alana um, sort of go to this other culture, which, like, women are, I guess, also somewhat oppressed, but differently. Mm-hmm. And um, also, from the from the knowledge we have, the Bazir yeah. are a democracy, right? Right. And, like, there are a lot of ways that women have more power in the Bazir society. Like, women, we've seen that women can fight in the Bazir society, which has been a huge issue for Alana in Tortolan mm-hmm. society. So, like, where is she doing, getting the power to do this thing where she's like, these poor women, like, you also don't get listened to. Right. This narrative of Alana really, like, championing feminism and um rather than just for herself changing the culture at large happens in a culture which is not her own just sort of ignores the problems with the the like i guess white hypothetically tortal and dominant culture same thing with sort of the colonialism and like government problems of uh you know they mention uh, it's really important among the Bajir for all the men to get a say, and sometimes even the women to get a say. And it's kind of like, oh, the women are, you know, in some ways, like, they don't get the vote. But in Tortal, no one gets the vote <laughs> yeah. because it's a monarchy. <laughs> and that's just okay because we like the monarch. Right. And also, like, Alana is so appalled that the women don't, like, get a seat in the discussion circle part of their democratic society mm-hmm. uh, and being like, what? The women don't get a seat at the table. But you don't in Tortal. Mm-hmm. Like, you've had to fight so much to be able to be in men's spaces. Right. And of course, she gets so much more say than most people in Tortal because she's a noble. Like, we never see the serfs in Tortal, but there must be serfs. Alana probably has serfs. Right. And yeah. she's getting so much say. It presents her as, like, this woman who's just getting power because she's righteous in this society but obviously she's getting power because she's white like based on her the privilege that she's bringing in when she joins the tribe like she gets more power than the other women and then she's just like yeah well i'm just great so really i that i deserve the power a thing i was noticing before it was brought up in the narrative and a thing that's explicitly addressed in the narrative is that um she's treated Mm -hmm. as an exception Mm -hmm. and she's using her status as an exception in order to, you know, train her apprentices who, you know, Mm -hmm. two of whom are women, which is (laughs) a good thing to do if you're an exception. Like that's what she's doing in Tortal is she's, she's this exception of being a lady knight. And in the future, we're going to see the ways in which her being an exception is a problem. And she hasn't done that same thing in Tortal of, like, making sure that um, more women can follow Mm -hmm. in her footsteps. There's a specific characterization of the Bajir, especially in the early pages of this book, as being warlike. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing that, for one thing, I don't see it being played out, that they are in any way particularly interested in well, especially in comparison to Tortal, who loves to conquer things. Yeah, they're colonized. Like, they're being colonized. They're, there are people who are trying to violently colonize them. Colonialism cannot be nonviolent. Right. Anyways, we, we kind of skimmed over this in earlier episodes. It has been specifically mentioned that the, the old king got some groups to assimilate, and other Bajir tribes just, like, killed them. Yeah. Or violently coerced them, yeah. Calling them warlike is... 
Like, I wish that that had been called out in the narrative because it felt like it's just so wrong. <laughs> it's just incorrect. Right. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you know, oppress and hurt and, yeah, you can't colonize a group and then have them react to that and be like, eh, you're so violent. You keep telling me not to colonize you. Like, Well, clearly you can because we do it all the time. Right. I, I mean, I think that's a very sort of classic thing to do by, you know, white imperialists is to say, oh, you know, the these uh, brown people are so violent, so it's a, like actually helpful to them that we're doing violence against them. You know, our violence is okay mm-hmm. because they're so violent. And to characterize anything that is e- even like nonviolent acts that are in resistance to colonization as being violence, even if it's like, you know, just destruction of property, which is not violent, by the way. Yeah. Right, but even the fact that they're called the Bloody Hawk tribe is just so much of them is about blood and violence and war, as if that weren't true of Tortal. I mean, as if we weren't following Alana on her journey to become the best at killing, you know? (laughs) But it's okay, because she feels bad when she kills. No one else feels remorse about that, except when she vanishes a young boy. Then she (laughs) feels fine. Yeah, it's weird how she was kind of so much just like, well, nothing to be done about that. Yeah, she, like, worried about him a lot, and then once he was dead, he was just dead. Yeah. And they didn't talk about him again. And she never, like, tried to intervene at all. It was very weird. She was just like, he'll really learn his lesson when he's dead. (sighs) Oh, man. I mean, she she tried to stop him. I don't, I, I don't trust that she tried hard enough. Right. And in terms of working with him when he was so clearly, you know, struggling with her, I don't think she did a particularly good job in just, you know, meeting him at his own level and thinking about, like, what he needed and wanted as a student. Yeah. Um, He's a teenage boy. She failed him as a teacher. Absolutely. Like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not her sole job to raise him, but she did not succeed at keeping this thing that he was clearly drawn to that would that could kill him that was very very dangerous even to her she didn't keep him safe from it right and she knew it was a danger she doesn't ever feel specifically guilty about that and she doesn't ever like it doesn't seem to hit her that she has like failed this student right as far as flawed pedagogy goes like this is like right up there like a, a classroom accident that results in the permanent vanishment of your student. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his death. Really bad. <laughs> yeah, he died. And mm-hmm. that's very, and it's very sad. And, like, there's, we've talked before about um, how this narrative uses, like, vague implied enchantments to kind of sanction things that happen or, like, doesn't acknowledge them in the way that they affect people's actions and how that would have implications for the actions that they take but like the sword does seem to like draw people to it and so it's sort of like when we were analyzing alex's actions as um you know trying to kill alana like it's not an action that he took in completely you know with agency if it was magically influenced and Mm -hmm. if that results in his death because someone didn't prevent it like that's very very sad and bad in the narrative, um, and I did not like it very much at all. Let's talk about the ladies. I'd like to touch on the characters that we are introduced to. 
and the women of the Bloody Hawk. And I'd also like to talk about the lack of women in the first like half of this book and how Alana keeps talking about how the women won't accept her. But again, we never see her trying. No, right. It's just like, oh, the men accepted her easily and the women hated her because patriarchy is the women's fault, right? <laughs> right. There's there's some something to be said for like, you know, for one thing, this white woman from the colonizing culture is coming in and, and like turning things on their head and like it's not a position that inspires trust. Yeah. No, and it, it is, this is kind of a side note, but it, it is fascinating that, you know, it's so much the only people who don't accept her are the women who are implied to resent her for, you know, I guess not being oppressed in their culture as much or differently. And then also the the shaman who's, like, really supposed to be, like, ignorant and power-hungry and all these things, you know, as if there weren't good reasons to dislike a colonizer coming into your tribe and taking over. Right, and, I mean, like, we see this a lot, that often when things change really drastically, um, the people who are already oppressed under those systems, like, they have good reason to resent that change because it can result in violence for them. Yeah, because yeah, they're definitely. already in systems where they are very susceptible to mm-hmm. violence. Like, um, often you see um, like feminist movements ignore how they are having like really bad implications for poorer women because they're already you know in places where they uh, are susceptible to violence more so. So I think this is sort of a situation mm-hmm. like that too, where you know, things are getting really shaken up in their tribe that could make people really resent the women. And that's something that Alana should acknowledge as somebody who's doing the shaking up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Alana comes in, you know, thinking that the only way that you can kind of perform womanhood is a certain way Mm -hmm. um, without looking at how this actually exists among the Vajir. Um, And then it's not so much of a surprise Mm -hmm. I do appreciate that, um, you know, in the previous books, we've gotten very much of a sort of not like the other girls thing from Alana. She didn't really have any female friends um, that we saw. I mean, in this book, apparently she retroactively did. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I, I appreciate that there there is this character arc for Alana where she learns that other women and the type of work that they do, you know, is important and not useless and also a correct way to be a woman, but it's unfortunate that this comes via, you know, I guess this entire tribe's worth of women being there to help her learn this with no real benefit to themselves, I guess. Right, and that's mm-hmm. that's their function. Like, we have a woman who, a Farrar, who um, is really an amazing person in this narrative like she's a real leader for the women of the tribe she has her own really cool skills in our past episode we analyzed that as potentially being like she's also good at magic and i'm just gonna stick with that i still Um, well okay well i i think there's there are two women there's farda and farrar uh one is good at one is the midwife who Mm -hmm. who's good at like herbal stuff and the other one's the master weaver yeah that's yeah. Farrar's the master weaver, right? And yeah, she's Farrar's... referred to as Mistress Farrar a lot. But they're both cool and great at magic. Yes. Um, There's no evidence for them having magic, but there isn't evidence for them not. Yeah. Exactly. There. I. Yeah. There's no evidence for them not being cool and great at magic, <laughs> and there is positive evidence for them being cool. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that these are um, 
cool women, like very good examples of like uh, performing womanhood in ways that allow you to both like have skills that are associated with femininity, like weaving, but also like you see the women of the tribe also fighting. So these, this is a much more complex portrayal of womanhood than we've seen otherwise in these books. And these women only make these cameos to be like, let me teach you one lesson. Right. And that's all. And that's very unfortunate. <laughs> and they get so little screen time. There are, you know, some sentences, maybe small paragraphs that talk about the women in this book. But Given the amount of influence that they're set on having on Alana, uh, it's this very unequal distribution yeah. between uh. the two. And the one boring, like, leader of the tribe man, who I don't remember his name. I mean, he's not that boring, but he does oh, not oh, do things yeah. that are quite as important. And he gets so much time, and Alana hangs out with him so much, and I'm just like kind of mad about that yeah him and the the other old shaman who's like a bit of a mentor to her and stuff there there are a lot of male characters in this narrative who um you know i mean they're they're also sort of fairly flat and don't get a lot of point of view time but i think it really is a loss that these women sort of come in to teach alana a lesson and they seem like they have really cool rich internal lives that we just don't get to know about yeah like i'm mm -hmm. so interested in like the what you know what all of the women are doing we get a couple glimpses into it uh like um the followers of the old shaman apparently the old shaman has like a click right there are mm -hmm. people who as i say the old shaman mm -hmm. we've referred to a different person as that um uh Aknan ibn nazir um the follow like his followers are said to be like mostly women or like a lot of women um, who, like, really looked up right. to him. What's their story? What's their story? What's up with that? I want to know how they reacted to Alana becoming the new shaman. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. kind of presented as, like, they're weak-minded, so they couldn't resist Ugh. following this bad guy. And I hate that. I'm sure there are more complex reasons that somebody would go with that. Like, is he... Yeah, what is he doing for them? How did he gain their influence? Or how did he gain influence over them? Like... It's yeah. just, it's too flat of a story, and that's something that these books are, like, unfortunately prone to when it comes to their female characters. And their female characters are, are generally very good, so why why do we treat them so bad? Yeah. Oh, another thing that I forgot to mention earlier. The title of this book, The Woman Who Rides Like a Man, they don't actually speak a different la language from Tortolans, but they still use these sort of, like, elaborate descriptive ways of talking mm -hmm. about things. Right, their syntax is real exoticized. Even though they apparently speak the same language. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is, this does imply that Bajir women, I guess, ride side saddle? Which I think is an interesting sort of implication that we never, you know, we never actually see any of them riding as far as I know. But also, like, the Bajir style of, de of dress mm -hmm. is totally different from the Tortolan one, so there's no real reason for that to be true. Oh, that's, oh, that's so interesting. True. I thought the implication, and this isn't to say that your reading is wrong, but I thought the implication was just that she was, like, being a knight, and that that was just, like, a symbol for that. But I really like your reading, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your reading is more practical, but I, yeah. I don't really know how it plays out for the book, since it wasn't explained much like any many other things in this book. Right, I mean, yeah, if it's a question of just, like, writing... I mean, I don't know what was intended by the author here. If it's a question of just, like, riding like a knight, you know, presumably none of the Bajir do that because they have a sort of very different fighting style and stuff as far as we've seen. True. 
So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm really curious. Like how how do your women ride? What do they do when they're riding? What's their deal? I want to know more. Mm-hmm. Right. Not to make every corner linguistics corner. <laughs> it's all linguistics corner. <laughs> but uh, their syntax being like sort of foreign sounding mm-hmm. is more evidence that they speak a different language and we just don't know anything about it which seems like just another denial of uh allowing the Pazir to have like an actual complex realistic culture yeah definitely mm-hmm. have we have more segments right yeah exhausted our race talk because we've been going for like a while <laughs> But I would say, I mean, we're yeah. happy to continue engaging with it, especially since, as we've said, like, we are not at all experts in this field. So, yeah, uh, yeah reach out to us if you have, uh, you know, comments or critiques yeah. or questions for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've already done a fair amount of authorial intent here. Should we, do, does anyone have any specific zombie author stuff to say? Uh, I just think Tamara Pierce did not think as much about this book as she should have. She came into this book very naive. I assume she came out of it still naive. Um, And that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. I'm interested in seeing where representations of people of color go in the future. Yeah, no, and I I think there's a lot of stuff that I sort of read as, like, you know, I, like, I... I was excited by the fact that the the Bloody Hawk tribe did not recognize the king, whereas I think that Tamara Pierce probably wanted that to be, or read that more as, like, a dangerous, scary thing. Yeah. <laughs> the, like, I think there, there's a lot of, um, probably stuff that we didn't even catch that she was looking at differently because of the way that she viewed race in this book, but I think we already did cover a lot of that. Yeah, I guess my, like, genre comment would be, like, why is so much fantasy so deeply into the monarchy? Right. Like, we as an American society, not (laughs) deeply into the monarchy. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's just something so comforting and easy about saying, like, well, the the king is good, so we just don't even have to, like, worry about the the difficulties of, like, governing systems, but... There'll never be never be a bad king, could you imagine? John is bad. Yeah, he's not good. Oh, he's so bad. I don't know why anyone trusts him to be a good king. Yeah, he's bad. Every word that he said, I know this kind of backwards looking to our past section, but just drips like this really gross kind of imperialism, this thinking that other cultures are inferior. And, and Ali Mugtab wants him to become the voice because uh, he sees it as a way to save the culture of the tribes, which, again, is just deeply sad, I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. but sad. But John wants to do it for the power. He doesn't care about their culture. Yeah, John loves power, and that's... And, like, the knowledge, but not in actually preserving and honoring their culture, which John is just the worst. John loves power. He's so power-hungry. And that's not normally presented as, like a good trait in, like, a romantic interest, a hero of a book. Yeah, and I mean, also looking forward, I think, you know, from Kel and stuff, we get a more nuanced view of Jonathan in some ways, but he's not a good king. No, and I mean, you would think after he undergoes the, you know, the voice ceremony, and he lives thousands Mm -hmm. of lives, you would think that he would have a new sense of empathy, you know, having personal experience with all of, you know, these different lives, these different cultures, but no, he's just just as terrible after which was extremely confusing to me i mean yeah he he has an arc there where he gets what he wants out of it which is the freedom to have other experiences than that of the crown prince but he doesn't he doesn't have an arc where he cares more about people right it's for him he just picks the ones that he wants to engage with 
Can you imagine how, just how vulnerable these people are making themselves to the monarch of a country that is, like, colonizing them? Like, yeah. th- that... Ugh, it's so it upsetting. so upset mm-hmm. that, that that's the solution, is to have their, like, thoughts and their feelings oh, and everything yeah, like that. Like, they're awful. doing it in order to, like... Mm-hmm. They're, they're trusting John to make the decisions that are best for them. I don't trust John to do anything. I don't trust Mm-mm. John at all. Not at all. I don't trust John at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, the implication is that Ali Maktab does trust him, but I super don't trust him. Right, and I think Ali Maktab trusts him, like, out of necessity. Like, I don't yeah. think this is the ideal yeah. situation for anybody. Mm-hmm. The ideal situation is for the colonialism to stop. In case anyone was curious. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and to just leave them alone. Why do they want this desert? Like, they don't know how to, like, maximize that ecosystem. The Bazir have figured it out. Yeah, no, why do why do the Tartalans... Because, I mean, because they're a colonial power and they just want whatever they can get. Um, I do... I This is a little bit out of order, but I do kind of want to just go into um, night vision right now so that we can get some of this stuff out of the way. So, booty 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 music... Um, <laughs> the, after the music, there will be spoilers. Listen for the next music cue to avoid the spoilers. We didn't say that last time. I feel like we should say that. In the next book, I think, we get... I mean, we'll have to read to it to see what what is actually explicitly there. But my memory of it is that the Dominion Jewel is explicitly giving a divine right to rule. It's saying that John is a good king and that's why he can wield the Dominion Jewel. And so, like, on a narrative level, that's very upsetting. I wonder if the narrative thinks that John is a good king just because of, like, kingly blood. I mean, there's definitely some level of blood, but I think, like, there is an implication that kings can be bad and Jonathan is a good king, and he's not. It's troubling enough that the narrative thinks Jonathan is, like, a good guy. Like, we don't really need to even get into ruling territory. Mm Mm-hmm. I think he comes across as more blatantly not a good person in this book, but... So the narrator thinks he's a good king in the future. Right, I think even in Kel we get like, oh, I don't really like him as a person, but he's a good king. No, he's not! And we're like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) Untrue. I wanted to talk about the parallels um, between uh, Ishak and Tom. Is there a better way to pronounce that name? I thought it was Ishak. I I like that. Ishak is good. He is good. He's he's a kid. He's he's like what, 18, 19? I, I he's a teenager, I think. Yeah, we we don't know exactly how old he is. Yeah, I think he's described as a young man when he appears. And I mean, I feel like even if he'd so, you know, Thom was sent to wizard school and was in a place where he could, you know, kind of like safely expand his hmm. you know, as he learned his gift, he could work through that and but Ishak never had the chance. Yeah, and it's odd because he's not even portrayed as, you know, evil by the narrative or anything. He's he's treated pretty sympathetically, mm. but then it's kind of just his fault that he died and um, everyone just sort of moves on from that. There, there are specific parallels drawn in the narrative between these two characters. Mm-hmm. Like, Alana keeps thinking, like, wow, this is, you know, this is so much how Tom acted, you know, like, this is so much like Tom. And I think some of the narrative purpose of that is to remind us to like keep us thinking about Tom because he's doing very important stuff in this right. book. <laughs> that, right, totally off screen, but we do get a lot of foreshadowing for uh, what happens in yeah, the next for, book. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that it happens off screen. I think we're going to talk about that next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. it's so, like, the tragedy of what happens to, to Ishak is, is, like, very foreshadowing of Tom's death in the yeah. next book. And it made me very sad. It feels so raw in this book. Tom... I mean, I, like, Alana has is closer to Tom, obviously, but, but there's a lot of sort of, like, even in this book, George has a thought, like, oh, Tom is what Alana would be if she mm-hmm. grew up with no friends and only enemies and having to, like, hide, you know, even bigger parts of herself, I guess. Mm-hmm. What a sad, sad thought. And that's so sad, yeah. But, I mean, that we get so much sympathy for Tom, who, you know, I mean, I do really feel for, but he is very much an adult. He's a master um, Mm -hmm. as a mage, and he's making some very poor choices, whereas I feel like Ishak, he's a kid. He doesn't know what he's doing, and somehow his death is equally justified and equally his fault. And he's he's being exposed to these forces that are very dangerous even for Alana, and specifically forces of Roger's making, I'd like to point out, while we're talking about parallels. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for real. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of foreshadowing of Roger, obviously. There's so yeah. much. Even when Alana says, sometimes I wonder if I don't want him to come back, I'm like, oof. <laughs> she <laughs> oh, spends yeah. a lot of this book thinking about Too him. much. Yeah. Which is understandable, because she did just kill him. Yeah, she's like fairly like obsessed with Roger through mm-hmm. a lot of this book. And I mean his influence is still felt because she's got this whole plotline with the sword, which I guess mm-hmm. was created by Roger and is, you know, mm-hmm. magically In evil. his amateur dueling days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just like made a sword that makes you like want to kill. I am very Why did he make why that? Roger would do this. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I, I don't know, there's a lot of sort of questions I have about how Alana at some point says, like, magic isn't really good or evil, but also the sword is evil. <laughs> I mean, perhaps it's that the sword is has a lot of, so much, I don't know, like, magical power imbued in it, and in Alana's mind, this power, or that much power always goes along with, you know, killing and death. Mm-hmm. At least in her initial, um, the way that she deals with magic initially, I think it might change over time though yeah but her but her relationship um well what she thinks of the sword at least in its initial incarnation before she fuses it with lightning um like that that doesn't change we don't ever get like well maybe that sword wasn't evil because that sword made you want to kill yeah that's like pretty close to evil that's not magic is evil that's like roger is evil and he made an evil thing this one sword is evil roger is evil yes The the only other thing I wanted to mention in this section is um, someone, I think some member of the Bajir said about Faithful, some think he is a god, some think he is a demon, and Alana said uh, he's neither, which, uh, like, there's some race stuff there as well, but, um, I mean, there's so much stuff that we could, we we could do two more hours on this. Um, Oh, also, pretty exciting when the person guessed um, exactly Amy's fan theory that... (laughs) <laughs> that faithful is <laughs> her sibling turned into a cat, which is exactly what Amy thought. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's some evidence. Yeah. But also, my question is, um, like, so, so this person said something he's a god, something he's a demon. And Alana said he's neither. Does she still think that he's a regular cat? Like, what is Alana's thing here? I was wondering how I should 
read a faithful going up to help in the ceremony mm-hmm. for the voice. Because when I initially read it, I felt it was like the hair, the, you know, because faithful is a god. Mm-hmm. Spoiler section, yeah. so it's fine. Um, you know, he's kind of, that's like the gods meddling in these affairs. And I feel like when I first read it, I interpreted that as these gods kind of supporting um, John's, um, you know, John yeah. becoming the voice, which made me deeply uncomfortable. Right. It's pretty narratively explicit that both John and Alana are chosen by the gods and the gods basically like back their mm-hmm. play. I think we just have to accept that the gods are not good people. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's pretty clear, <laughs> honestly, in this universe. This is something we'll get into yeah, in no, later fair. books, but yeah, mm-hmm. not great. But they are still, like, gods in the narrative, yeah. and that is, like, excusing that. I mean, honestly, this is kind of how, like, a um, a Greek pantheon will work sometimes, where, like, mm-hmm. you know, if the gods are fighting each other, they can't both be, like, morally in the right, but they're still just extremely powerful beings who control what humans do. So, Queen's Riders, friendship. Who wants to cry about Miles? Because I always want to cry about Miles. (laughs) Uh, Miles is so sweet and so great and really, like, just the shining golden moment of this book that made me not feel completely like I should just throw this book into a pit. Yeah. No, that's all I care about in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kara and Kurum were great, too. That's true. Yeah, they're lovely. Um, You know, I like that Alana and Kurum also have this lovely, you know... Alana really has, like, two kind of, like, dad-uncle figures, and they're, like, Miles, who is great and wonderful, and Coram, who's, he's, like, I, but they have a good friendship. <laughs> yeah, they have some good stuff. It was cute at the beginning when, um, she was dueling that guy, and she did a wrestling move successfully, and Coram got really excited because she's bad at wrestling. <laughs> yeah. Coram loves cheering for uh-huh. her in fights, and it's very, very, very cute. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing I, I really liked, um about Miles was, I mean, we talked last time about how he supported all her marriage choices and that was great, but also when um, she was talking about weaving and, like, learning to do women's work but being bad at it, he said, like, you know, you're you're really brave to admit that you don't know something and, like, learn about it and just, he's such a good Aww. mentor. It's such a good yeah. parent thing. Miles Aww, is just the best. so good. He's her parent now. I love him. Yeah, what a good choice and a good scene and he adopts her and they're both like crying about it and it's the best (laughs) yeah there weren't that many other like great excellent friendship moments yeah Um, no honorable mentions to all the women of this tribe for being rad (laughs) yeah sorry you don't get represented enough to have cool friendship moments you seem like you're great Mm-hmm. Oh, also, in the, the other random plot that happens in this book that's just, like, George adventure, um, I thought it was cute <laughs> that his second-in-command is constantly trying to, like, usurp him and become king of thieves, but then, like, when they're threatened from outside, <laughs> they, like, band together. That That's a fun relationship. They are sometimes friends. It's yeah. cute. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. I also like mm-hmm. George and Rispa's friendship. I feel like it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It was nice to finally see another... Uh, woman in the Court of the Rogue. Like, Rispa was mentioned yeah. in an earlier book, but she's never done anything before, so it was nice she to see She took Alana her. shopping in this book. Mm. It was great. Yeah, that was good. She's never done anything before. Mm. <laughs> she hasn't. She was just there. Yeah, she hasn't. That we've seen. Animal friends? Animal friendship subsection? Faithful clawed some people. It's not fair because Faithful's 
Yeah, Faithful gets negative animal friendship yeah, points. Yeah, Faithful's bad. Yeah, Faithful keeps gaslighting her. It's not good. Yeah, negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I will give some points for um, Ali Mukhtab being into cats because I love him, but we didn't see a lot of but that on screen. we didn't meet any of his cats. Really not much animal friendship. Moving on? Yeah, let's move on. Mm-hmm. Um, Chamber of the Ordeal. So we've got to rate this book on nostalgia and animal friendship. We just talked about animal friendship. That's Can very easy. Can we just easy. agree on a blanket animal friendship of like one or Yeah, so? I'll give it one out of ten. Yeah. One. Yeah. <laughs> there were animals in it. Because the horse... Animals existed, and Faithful wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay, so nostalgia ratings? I wrote three out of ten. Mm-hmm. Maybe a two. Uh, just because, you know, I read it now with slightly more understanding of, you know, things like yeah. colonialism, race, gender, um, in a way that really changed how I shaped the book, and so it really... Uh, squish the nostalgia factor, but Miles is really what brought that score up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would rate similarly with the uh, added caveat that I didn't have a lot of nostalgia about this book because I don't think I enjoyed it the first time I read it, mm-hmm. so I've only read it once, and therefore, yeah, um, I don't know. In some ways, that's good because like my image of the book wasn't ruined, but mm-hmm. at the same time, like I didn't have a lot to make me go like, oh yeah, I remember this. So um, yeah, like a two. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I forgot that Miles adopting Alana was in this book specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, that was great. So, and also, like, Kara and Kuram were better than I remembered. Mm. So, like, it was better than I expected it to be and better than I remembered it being. And so I'll give it, like, a three, I guess. Out of ten. Yeah. I didn't, like, yeah. Didn't have a bunch of nostalgia looking back on this one. Yeah. I haven't read it before. But I would still give it, like, a a 3 out of 10, I guess, for, like... I mean, there were it was interesting because there was so much that I hated about it, but there were also, like, you know, it's a new Tamara Pierce book to me, and there were parts where, like, I forgot to take notes for a few pages because I was, like, invested in what was happening. <laughs> That's cute. So, like, that was good. And also, um, Miles' adoption was very good. Mm-hmm. Now we recommend it? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Who would we recommend this to? Oh, I would like to endorse my childhood reading order of... One, two, four, um, and recommend <laughs> that you reference this book only for the Miles adoption scene. Yeah, totally agreed. You can skip this one. Um, yeah, I would just like to recommend a different book as long as I'm here in this corner, um, which is uh, the last Alana scene where she goes and rescues that witch yes. is like deeply, deeply similar to this wonderful series by Mercedes Lackey. Uh, what's the, it's the Vows and Honor series. Vows and Honor series, Oathbreakers and yeah. all of those. Oath. Whatever, they all have the word oath in them. Yeah, and they're really cute. Yeah, my, like, super quick pitch is that it's about two women who uh, go and rescue other women. It's a sword and sorceress book. It has a similar vibe to this, but far less colonialism as far as I remember. So, yeah. I mean, so so one of the two women is uh, also sort of a, a... You know, she's one of the two main characters, which is Rad, and she's a, a member of a um, a black tribe of people i don't remember a lot of the details there are definitely some race tropes in there but i think it's significantly improved just by the fact that um she is a main character and you get her point of view and so much of the books are just them going around rescuing other women which is great and also 
uh, the black character is uh, canonically asexual, so I'm into that. Yeah, yeah. Shout out if nice. you want just like a separate podcast or a bonus episode from me and Abby where we just talk about Mercedes Lackey books because I have read <laughs> eleven this year. Thank you, Abby. We will do it so hard. It's so good. I mean, like they also have problems, but they're so good. Guys, guys, guys. Aurora yeah. needs to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I would recommend this to no one. Aurora, who would you recommend this book to? Go quick. Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, if someone's, like, super curious and wants to read it, I would recommend not reading it until you're, you know how to approach it. Um, so wait a while. Go to college. Then read the book. <laughs> if you're giving it to a child, just don't give them this book. Be like, it's it's weird. Three doesn't exist in this universe. <laughs> I, I, uh said something similar on Twitter about the first Alana book, actually. Um, but I would recommend this book to uh, scholars or people who are interested in mm -hmm. the biases of media that our generation grew up reading. Yeah, good answer. Ooh, very good, yeah. Um, so Aurora had to step out, but I have a, a palace gossip section here. We got a Tumblr ask from Sharing of Words, that says, uh, when John goes across the river, I read it less as he's white male nobility, so he can, and more, he is the only heir of a king slash queen who can't have any more children, so of course his father can't execute him. Which is true. Absolutely true. We talked about the, um, <laughs> Grace, you have a, a question? <laughs> or a comment? Um, well, I think, well, I want to respond because I think I'm the original person that said that. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. Uh, Okay, so my breakdown of kind of what I meant versus this ask, uh, this ask is, makes a really good point, and I just want to kind of deconstruct it. I would say that the uh, point that you're making is very much like a Watsonian point, like that very much in-universe is why John mm. cannot be executed. But when an author chooses to write things that way about a white male, the doyleist point would be like, that is still sanctioning like a manifest destiny, a privileged part part of the narrative like john has this privilege in universe because of practicality and the way that's written in the book and not critiqued still promotes like bad ideas about privilege and deserving the land yeah i mean i think there there are um there are multiple levels of uh you know of power here and obviously john is at the absolute highest level of you know he is the, the king's only son, and he basically can do whatever he wants and not be executed. And that's definitely true. He also has privilege as a white male noble, um, which is also privilege that lots of other characters have, but possibly he is the only one who could actually get away with this particular stunt. Um, but, right, there, there's various levels here. Um, he's at a slightly higher cutoff in, of what he can get away with, but, right, we were sort of talking, I think, about the general pattern of white nobility can get away with way more than other people in these books and also in life yeah i don't remember like who pointed this out to us but thank you someone on twitter uh pointed out to us that uh the privilege of being a noble is a lot more present in the book than i think it has been present in our analysis so we have a lot of characters who are uh kind of in the core friendship group that Alana's in, who are like the most powerful young men in this entire country, and we haven't really been touching on that. Yeah, this was was this Indigo Han on Twitter? 
That That's a really great analysis that Alana is just part of this group of literally the most powerful people in the country. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, I want to bring up the, the rest of this point that this person made, actually, um, is that it's specifically uh, in reference to Raylon. Yeah, the bully. Melvin and bullying. Apparently, John at one point says that Raul likes hitting Raylon, which um, implies that maybe they're using their power, too, and ex- excluding people mm-hmm. and creating a toxic atmosphere. Yeah, very so possible. And we point. only see it from Alana's point of view, so it's hard to tell. Because she experiences a lot of privilege as part of this clique. Yeah, in this original Tumblr ask, I don't want to be dismissive of that. Like, that's a really, that's a good point. And it's important to keep both of those levels of analysis present, which I don't know if we did the best job Mm -hmm. of doing that, or I did the best job of doing that in our original discussion. But um, I think that the point that this uh, person is making and the point that I was making can coexist because they are kind of analysis in different realms, so they don't cancel each other out. Right. I think there's, there's a lot of levels of privilege going on here, and some are more visible to us than Everyone others. Everyone is very privileged. Everyone is very privileged. I'm so excited to get to future series where the main characters are not nobles. Right. Way more interesting. Alana's a fairly minor noble, but she is also friends with the highest ranking nobles in the country, mm-hmm. and also... You know, she's incredibly magical and chosen by the goddess. And I feel, you know, there's just so much to her story that um, we'll, we'll, I think, get different views on when we uh, see less privileged characters. So that'll be cool. You know, chosen by the god privilege. That always comes up a lot in social justice (laughs) Well, you know. Um, But yeah, so thank you, Sharing of Words on Tumblr and Indigohan on Twitter. Uh, and also thank you to Professional Struggler and The Sober Folly for sending us nice Tumblr messages. And uh, to Voronail, I think, for reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. If you want to join those people, please do that. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Wait. Yeah. Sorry, what? that wasn't very um, gender neutral. I'm Minnesotan. Can I say thanks, folks, instead? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, you can rate and review us on iTunes. That's much appreciated. You can get in touch with us at um tortal recall at gmail.com at tortal recall on twitter uh tortal recall on tumblr just you know look us up tortalrecall.com is our website you can go to any of those places you can also we're on a bunch of podcatchers you know pretty much all of, all of the relevant ones i think but if we're not on one that you want us to be on let us know and we can probably get on there uh yeah so thank you so much for listening next episode uh it'll be us two and Aurora and Amy. I'm going to finally get to meet Amy. I've never met Amy <laughs> well, before. you've never we met. We keep missing each other. Wait, really? We've never met. I mean, you guys have, like, met in life. I've never met Amy. I can't wait to meet Amy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you've been listening to Tortal Recall. Till next time, Tortellini. Bye, guys. Bye, Bye. We appreciate you. Have fun and coffee. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Have fun and coffee. <laughs> Hey folks, this is Gus popping in during editing. Um, we forgot to credit our music. Our intro-outro music is a version of Green Sleeves by Zeta, which you can find on SoundCloud or YouTube. And our bonus music that you hear before and after Night Vision is Crunk Night by Kevin McLeod. And you can find that on the Free Music Archive. That's all. Bye!